We'll be reading from um, Daniel 2, 24 through 30. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in, in its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter, day, later days. Your dream, the visions of your head as you lay in bed, are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you who is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. This is the word of the Lord. Guys, wait, there we go. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. I love that you had the Bible in one hand and your child claim ticket in the other as you were reading there. We are studying the book of Daniel. This is our third lesson. If you haven't been with us, the recap would be that God allowed the Babylonian Empire to rise up, to come over into uh, Jerusalem and capture it, to defeat their armies, and they have begun to bring some of the uh, Jewish residents back into, as exiles, to live into Babylon, the empire of Babylon. And last week, we saw that Daniel was faced with the challenge of, of if he was going to hold a line on convictions he had in his heart that reflected the faith that he had, or if he would give in to them. And we learned that where God has drawn a line, and he says no, I draw a line and I say no. And today, though, we're going to look at, again, Daniel, but the emphasis will also be on the whole community of God's people that he's lifted up and brought over to Babylon. Now, in Daniel, it's his story and his experience, but there are other passages in the Old Testament that also give part of the story. And I want to take you on our slide to Jeremiah uh, I've entitled this The Utility of Babylon, but they were faced with this question, where do we live? And Jeremiah uh, gives an answer. Before I read it, I'll give you the context. And that is this, that the people who were brought into Babylon were faced with the conundrum. The Babylonians said, come, live in the city with the Babylonians. But their goal was to strip them of their spiritual identity. They wanted them to be Babylonian. And there were some prophets and some preachers who were standing up and they were speaking to God's people and they were saying, don't go live in the city. If you live in the city, you're going to lose your spiritual identity. And they were saying to them, create 
live outside the city. Like create a suburb where you can live and keep your spiritual identity. Now, Jeremiah, God's man, stood up and said, those prophets, those preachers saying that, they are liars. That is not the word of God. That is not what he wants you to do. And then he gives them God's word. And this is part of it. And he says, as we read the slide, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. And it's interesting that the word is, you know how you lived back in Jerusalem, live that same life here. You're going to be here for a while. You need to make a life for yourself. Go live in the city. And you know what you do in the city? You build houses in there. You build a life for your family. You have sons, you have daughters, you give them away in marriage. You, you participate in the culture that way. Don't hide in a suburb of Christianity. And then he goes on to say this in the next part of the verse, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. See, there's a way to go live in the city and climb the ladder, the corporate ladder, and make something of yourself in your life and not care about the city. And in these two together, you see, go, build, make something of your life, but don't do it at the expense of the city. You do it for the city. Live in the city, keep your spiritual identity, but engage in the city in such a way that you wish that the city has its very best come out of it. And this is the mission of Bayview Church. Today when you leave, you get in your car and you drive out of the parking lot, you're going to see a sign at the end of the parking lot and you can read it. And it's this verse, although I've contextualized it so it Technically, it's a paraphrase because I took the word city out because we're in Guam. There's not a city really, right? And there's village and, and island. And I, I put those words in there. You need to live in Guam, engage in the culture in Guam in such a way that you want its welfare. You want it to do well. And if Guam does well, you will do well. But it's very secular and self-centered to think of it the opposite, which is really what a lot of the world does. I care about my welfare. If the city doesn't do well, but I do well, I've succeeded still, because that's what's important, right? And he says, no, you put the city first. You live in a way that you care about. You're connected to the whole community. You want the whole community to do well. And that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see not only Daniel, Daniel who's often faced with these decisions that are very individual, and they draw out his faith, there's choices you can make that demonstrate faith, or I've acquiesced and I've given in to culture, or he stands, he draws a line, but not just individual now. Today you're going to see community. Jeremiah said not just Daniel interactions, but the whole community of God makes an impact. So that's going to take us here into our passage. We have 30 verses to cover today. So I'm going to be summarizing some sections, but we're going to draw some good points out. Here's the first one. God's plan is bigger than the greatest man. So we start in chapter 2. Let me read verse 1. 
It says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So what I'm going to show here in the first point, God's plan is bigger than the greatest man. Nebuchadnezzar is the greatest man, most powerful, the most wealthiest man on the planet at this time. Babylon rose up. They conquered all enemies. Israel is one example how they brought them in as exiles. They amalgamated cultures into them and made them Babylonian. You would think this guy has nothing to fear, no worries. He could put his head on the pillow and not be afraid of anything. And yet he cannot sleep. And what you're going to see is God has a plan. He's going to work it. And his plan is bigger than the greatest man. doesn't matter how big and great you are. God, what you're seeing is he's come down and he's touched him in such a way. He's put something in here that is troubling him. In fact, the words here mean a deep disturbance inducing apprehension. His sleep broke from him would be like a literal translation. He could not sleep. Now, let me remind you. He shouldn't be afraid of anyone. This guy, I was reading, studying in, in one part where I was studying, it was uh, Nebuchadnezzar was described as like a super dictator. You could take Hitler and all the great dictators that we might know about and roll them into one. Hitler, Pal Pot, uh, Karl Marx, roll them into one. That's Nebuchadnezzar. And he could do anything. He, he didn't have to try to work with with politicians and get them onto his side to accomplish what his goals would be. Whatever he wanted, he did. He was a powerful man, and yet you could see that he can't even put his head on the pillow and rest. Something's troubling him. This is the way that God's going to work. The great and powerful king is terrified. God is starting to do something in him. He's put some dreams in him that terrify him. The terrified king then looks to men for answers, it says in verse 2, Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. Now, there's four groups here. Look, this is common, right? People who, who would be in power like him, they've got lots of people underneath them. They've got a problem to solve. They're going to bring in the best people and say, how do we solve this problem, right? Where does he find the answers? He finds it in men. And he's called them together. These, these uh, four groups, you have magicians. Now, this is not somebody who does magic tricks. The word that we get uh, magician for, the Hebrew word for it, it actually means pen. And the inference is that, that they were scholars. They, they, they were people who wrote. So you got these scholars. You have the astrologers who study the stars to predict the future. You have sorcerers. These are people who practice incantations. And then you have actually the most important group, which is the Chaldeans. And the Chaldeans, I, I could give you a lot of history on this, but the short version is this, is that they, they're kind of the spokesperson. They, you see it through the story. They're speaking for the whole group, uh, kind of the leaders of the, the, this upper echelon of educated people. So we got this powerful king that's terrified, he looks to men for answers, and here's what we see in the next section, that great kings don't tolerate failure. Look what happens here as we pick up in verse 3. It says, And the king said to them, I had a dream, 
and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, just a side note here, if you were to have the old parchments that they've uh, translated into the Bible today, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, the language of the Jews, but there's a section right here that's in Aramaic, and it's kind of like when you're watching a movie and they take you back in time, and in, in that certain section of the movie, the, all of the, it's not in English, it's in what, what, whatever language of the culture is, and you've got to read the subtitles, you know? It's like it's giving you a little bit of the culture and history. This section is, was actually in Aramaic. It says they spoke to him in Aramaic, and, and it says, uh, O king, live forever, tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Then the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, notice both. You got to tell me not just the interpretation of the dream, you got to tell me what the dream was. <clears throat> you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from, from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Now, this is interesting. I don't know if you ever woke up and you're like, I had the weirdest dream. But never would it be like, I woke up, I had the weirdest dream. Could you tell me what it is? How am I going to know what your dream is? But see, he's crafty. He, I mean, look, look at the, what he's laid out here. Yes, reward. But if you don't do it, it's not, it's not just failure, it's death. I'm going to tear you limb from limb, and I'm going to lay ruin your house. That's terrifying. So if I was in that boat, I'm coming up with something. Tell me your dream. Okay, here's what I think it means, right? He knows that, that that's what could happen, so he's going to test him. Not only do you have to interpret it, but I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. If you could tell me what the dream is, then I know that you could interpret it right? So he's laid it out that way. But these guys are in trouble, not just because on a human level, it's like, I can't read your mind. But if I go to the New Testament, Paul teaches us about spiritual things. In 2 Corinthians 2, 14, Paul writes that the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And Paul teaches that people who don't have the Spirit of God in them, they can't understand fully God's Word. And there's a way in which God's come down and touched the mind of Nebuchadnezzar, and it's not just know the dream, but the interpretation of the dream has these, this spiritual element to it that they cannot know because they're, they're pagan. They have no connection to God that way. And there's a way in which it's, it is impossible for them. But God's doing something through all this. And so he's interacted with him. And here's what comes out of this. And this is the last part of this, that, that God's plan's bigger than the greatest man, is that the answer transcends men. Look what happens in verse 7. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream. And we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. 
If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. Now, notice this next part. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. Now, there's a lot going on there. Let me kind of summarize it for you. First, you see the interaction going back and forth. He's not going to be, you're buying for time. You're stalling. Look, this is a firm thing. You better come up with the answer. I don't tolerate failure. You tell me the, the dream and its interpretation. And then they get to the end and the response is this. What you're asking has never been asked before by any great king. There's a way in which they kind of push it back on him, right? No other king has ever done this. They've never asked of enchanters or Chaldeans this type of thing. And then they say this. And this is where they clue in that the answer can't be found in men. The answer's with the gods. And the gods don't walk in flesh down here. And look at what God's doing. He's kind of setting things up for what? For a man who is connected to the one true God who's going to bring about the answer. Now, um, I had this great quote from one writer on this particular spot. He said, these sons of the colleges were trained and paid to interpret mysteries. And it's reasonable to assume that the means whereby they could know the interpretation of a dream might also be employed to discover the dream itself. The fact is, they were frauds. And Daniel's showing here in one single sentence that all of the astrology and necromancy and oracles and dreams and mantic revelations of the whole pagan world for 6,000 years are nothing but imbecilities and lies. And it proves that all the religions and arts and sciences and philosophies and attainments and powers of men apart from God-inspired prophets and all glorious Christ are nothing but emptiness and vanity as regards any true and adequate knowledge of the purpose and will of God. What a great quote. And it's essentially saying that the knowledge of man cannot understand the things of God. It's outside. The word transcend means it's bigger than man. That's what it's saying. And there's another way I can illustrate this, and it's with a picture. And I think my next slide shows this. This is Richard Dawkins, who's a fairly well-known uh, atheist, and he works a lot at trying to uh, put down church and Christianity and the Bible. And in, in this particular uh, uh, picture comes out of a documentary made by a guy named Ben Stein. In the back of the head there is Ben Stein. If you don't know who Ben Stein from his most notable work, I think as an actor, is in the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where he's a teacher and he's saying, Bueller, Bueller. That's Ben Stein, but he's also an economist. And uh, he made this documentary called um, um, Expelled. And the whole documentary is really about uh, freedom, uh, freedom in education. And what he's driving at is you, in the educational system, you teach evolution as a, as, as a naturalism and you set, so, set God aside. And we're not even allowed to ask a question if, 
if there could be a God who had made these things. That's really the point of his documentary. And in this clip, what he's, they're, they're dialoguing about this. And Ben Stein is talking about the DNA code. He's, the DNA code, do you know how much information's in that? Science can explain how the information bonds to the code. There's a lot that it can explain, but it cannot explain who organized the information. Who did that? And it, it demonstrates like something exists that leads us to believe there, there was an organizer of it. And they're going back and forth. And as they're going back and forth, it kind of peaks at this moment where Dawkins' answer to that is, well, there must be perhaps an intelligent, an intelligent organizer that's alien life. And Ben Stein says, well, who made that? It just keeps going backwards like that. And this is where the Bible says, the heavens declare the majesty of God. There's something about the universe where God made it where you can look and say, wow, God. And Ben Stein's point was to say, not the heavens declare, but the microscope declares. I look in the microscope and there's something there. And it says, God. Some of that, that answer is bigger than man because God is bigger than man. And yet we can see it there. And here God is demonstrating. He comes down and he, he touches the mind of Nebuchadnezzar and he's searching for answers in men. And sometimes we come to the man and what is the answer? And the answer they give, we can't find it really, so we got to come up with something. Aliens. And this is where, how God's working. He's going to put the greatest, most powerful king on the planet into the corner where he's going to open up to something else. God's plan's bigger than the greatest man. God's plan positions his own man to work. This is what God is doing. He's maneuvering. This whole thing is an orchestration to bring about Daniel to a specific point. And here's the first thing I have here that we're going to notice about Daniel. How can you, as you live in Babylon, end up in situations of influence. And we go backwards. Before Daniel gets there, you got to look at how he got there. And how he got there is always how he engaged with the people God put into his life, okay? And the first thing we see here is he engages with grace, verses 12 to 16. Because of this, the king was very angry. That's because of their answer. Their answer was, it's only in the gods and they don't walk in the flesh. That upset the king. And the king's response is, because of this, the king was angry, very furious, and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent. Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So these are kind of sections where I summarize a little bit. We're not sure exactly the chronology, how it unfolded, but what seems apparent is Daniel wasn't physically present in that group of four, the four categories that came to try to answer it. They failed. It upset the king. He says, kill them all. All wise men, dead. So Daniel's part of that group, but he's not physically present. So the, the guard, captain of the guard, Arioch, is going out searching. 
I'm going to find all the wise men. We're putting them to death. Here's Daniel. Now just imagine if you're at your house or your dwelling place, whatever, and someone comes up and the person there, their whole intent is, we're here to kill you. What's going to be your response? Oh, okay. Most people are like, put up a defense, right? I'm not going to go down. I'm going down without a fight. You know, but Daniel engages with grace. His response isn't, you know, self-preservation. Uh, His response is to inquire. First of all, what is going on? And there's a graciousness. This is what we always see out of Daniel. Last week it was, you got to eat this way. How did he engage with, with uh, the head unit? Do you remember that? And it was with grace. And that, see, part of the lesson for us to draw is, when we go live in Babylon and we interact with Babylonians, we interact with grace. And that's what he does here. He inquires with prudence, which means cautiousness, which is often associated with, with having some wisdom. He inquires with discretion, which is a quality of behaving or speaking in such a way that you avoid causing offense or revealing private information. So he's he, the way in which he engages shows this maturity that comes out of him and this graciousness because God is gracious with us. In the same way that Babylon is kind of always at Daniel like that. And when we live in a, in, in a context where we're having to face things like this, do we act gracious? But yet God goes, but that's how you are to me. I keep trying to get you to walk a certain way and you keep doing this to me. Yet God's gracious to us and that's the motivating factor. It causes us in here to be like that. I want to I be gracious because you've been so gracious to me. And he, he interacts that way and it leads him to this point where he, he realizes what is it that they want? Remember last week? What did they want last week? Last week they wanted good looking people. And they thought they could get good-looking people by giving them the Babylonian diet. But Daniel offered a solution. So he listens, interacts with grace, and discerns, and comes with a solution. He's just going to offer a solution. He can't force it, but that's what he's always doing. Last week, his solution was, can we try our diet? And if it works, let us keep it. If not, then we'll do yours. This, this time, it's like, okay, they're here to kill us. What do they want? Well, he listened. He asked, and he said, this is what's going on, right? And Daniel knows. What is it they want? They want to know the, they want to know the answer to the dream. K the king wants to know that. Now, Daniel, Daniel right away sends out, I don't know how he does it. He sends out, it's like uh, <laughs> getting a reservation at the DMV. I don't know. You got an appointment, right? He gets an appointment with the king, and what's the purpose? To interpret the dream. Bling! All these guys failed. There's somebody claiming he's, got, he's, he's setting it up, right? He does that. So he offers a solution similar to last week. So he engages with grace. This is how God's positioning his man. Secondly, he prays with, with confidence. Verse 17 says, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, what does he do? I'm going to offer a solution, but in this moment, he doesn't know the answer. He doesn't know the dream. He doesn't know the, the interpretation of the dream. So what does he do? He prays. And this is kind of like last week. Last week, it was like, I'm going to hold my line 
And then I got to step out of the way. And what do we say? You got to let God work. If you're going to have integrity and stand in those moments, his confidence is, I know my God knows the answer. I'm going to declare it. Maybe he'll give me the answer. Maybe he won't. But now I can put it to prayer and see if God works. Put it back upwards. Send it that direction. And that's what he does. And it's, it's interesting. It's the opposite of, of what Nebuchadnezzar did. Nebuchadnezzar sought the answers in men. And as Daniel's living in Babylon, seek your answers upward. We go there first and lay it before the throne of God. And that's what he does with his friends. Let's pray about this. Let's ask for mercy. But he prays with his confidence. And then in verse 19, it says, Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven because, I'm sorry, in verse 19, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. You got to get those in right order. So he goes to prayer. And did, did you, there's a common word being used through this whole sequence. It, it's the word then. You see, sequentially, this is how we're to do it. Then this happens. Then that happens. So, so what's the order? Engage with grace. Listen, discern. Think of a solution. Offer it. Then go to prayer. Then step aside. Let God work. And when God works, then the next thing is don't forget him. You go to God and you give thanks and praise for what he has done in your life because I talk about this every time at communion. We as humans, one of our traits is we're very forgetful. And God builds things into our worship practice to remind us. So Daniel waits on God to work in verse 19. And then he praises God for his work. What does he say? Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God, of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. In the New Testament, Jesus says, you realize that earthly fathers love to give their earthly kids gifts. When they come and ask, they like to be able to give what's being asked of them. How much more does a perfect Heavenly Father, who has no limitations, like to give to His children when they come and present before Him their needs, the answer. And we see that in Daniel. Put it before the God of heaven. Let Him work, and then don't forget to come. In fact, if, if, if you're in that timeline and there's something that's big and you say, I need to put it to prayer, I would take what Daniel says as his praise and thanksgiving and make it part of your prayer. The same way you answer Daniel's prayer, and this is what he said, blessed be the name of God. It's a reminder of who he is. He is sovereign. He raises up kings and brings down kingdoms. He gives wisdom to the wise. And you put that back up to God in prayer. But all of this is God's plan for positioning his own man to work, and it leads us to the next point, which is God's plan influences culture with his man. 
So we kind of see this humbling of the king. He's terrified. The most powerful man is terrified. He's seeking answers. And God, through that experience, is going to bring Daniel along and position him. Daniel will become the second most powerful guy. He is going to be the right-hand man to the king eventually. God's leading him up to this. He's going to put the kingdom under his care. But he's not there yet. And you're seeing the process of how God in his sovereignty is going to position his man, Daniel. Why? To influence Babylon. To influence the leaders of Babylon. To change culture. Remember, we're to seek the welfare of the city. Daniel is not categorically climbing the corporate ladder for greed. He's part of God's plan. And yes, he's, he, this, you're watching right now. His, he's ascending upward. But why? Because of the welfare of the city. He, 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 he's got Jeremiah's words as a context to drive him forward. So here's what I want to say about God, how he uses his man. And here's the first one. I, I, I titled these Daniel interactions. Daniel interactions impact people. Verse 24, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me, before, or bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I the, king and ha- I, the king, have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Now, like how it says he went in haste because a lot of lives are on the line. But it, it's not one singular moment. This is happening over time. He's had interaction with Arioch. And now he comes back to Arioch and says to him, I got the answer. You take me to the king. That's what the king wants. Okay. Daniel's interactions impact people. It turns Arioch into a guy who's about to be the, the hand of a, 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 as an executioner into the man who's going to bring the answer to the king. I have found a man. Remember last week how he had an impact on the head eunuch Ashpenaz? Already, we're just at, at the chapter 2. There's two of the main leaders in Babylon he's having influence on. He's impacting them, Ashpenaz and Arioch. Daniel interactions impact individuals, which means for you, as you live in a culture, a Babylon, you live in Babylon, think about all your interactions. Your interactions make, have individual impact on people. Daniel interactions also equal values reimagined. Verse 26, then the king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. (laughs) Well, that's interesting. He just said no one can do it, right? Ah, but look what he says. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Now, here's here's why I wrote it this way. Values reimagined. He's basically saying to the leader, you got to think outside the box that you know. You need to re- reimagine where the answer can come from. This is what we're to do in our Daniel interactions is to, to build through grace and, 
and being savvy and smart by listening and coming up with other solutions maybe that we set on the table and be led up to a point. It's like, look, you see things this way. But let me introduce you to, because right, it's not working, is it? You don't got the answer. And so it, it, it allows us to interact with, with a lost culture and try to get them to reimagine things God's way. This is true of everything. He said, go live in the city. Why did he tell him to build a house? Why did he tell him to get married and to have kids? Because the Babylonians need to reimagine what house building looks like, what marriage looks like, what having kids look like, managing money. What does it look like in God's economy? Because in the Babylonian economy, we build grandiose houses as a testimony to who we are. That's not what Christians do. We use marriage to get what we want in this way. We think of money this way. We think of intimacy this way. And there's a way in which Daniel interactions, interactions cause lost culture to reimagine and to think things through outside the box of secular. Two, gospel-oriented. And it does this. Daniel interactions allow us to introduce. It equals God in heaven introduced. He says, but... There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries but made, made known to you what is to be. Now, he's kind of given you what the dream is. But next week, we're going to look at the actual dream. And do you know what it is? It is the history of the world. That's why he's so terrified what he's seeing. And Daniel's saying, this is what's in your head. It's what's to be. It's what's to come after that. God's giving you the future. He's showing it to you. So, but what he has done is he's introduced him to, what does he say? The God in heaven. Remember before it was like, the answer can only be found in the little g gods. The Babylonians had other gods, right? But Daniel, let me introduce you to the God, the one true God of our people, the God of heaven. That's where your answer is. He's come down and he's put it in your head to draw you to him because you can't find the answer anywhere else. Think outside your box. And let me introduce you to where the answer can be found. This is what we are to do with our interactions. And lastly, I put here, Daniel, Daniel interactions equal leaders find answers. Verse 30 says, But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. And there's a way in which he says, all of this came about so you can have your answer. That's what he's saying. Leaders have to think about our leaders. Our leaders struggle with a lot of different things they're trying to solve. They want answers. And here God has positioned his man to come alongside and say, I have an answer for you. And it all points back up to God. That um, line where he says, there is a God in heaven. I had to preach once. In L.A., we were going through the whole Bible and every Sunday we did one book of the Bible. We had to summarize the whole book. Imagine trying to summarize all of Daniel in one sermon. But that was the key verse. Every book has a key verse, something that's at the heart of that entire book. Right here, you can underline it. 
There is a God in heaven. That's the key verse to Daniel. And we'll kind of tie into that and keep building it as we go forward. But there is a God in heaven. And what we see is we see, we're seeing God's plan come into fruition. He, just like Daniel said in his prayer, is sovereign over all things. Kings rise, kingdoms fall, gives wisdom. He put the dream in Nebuchadnezzar's head, the most powerful man. It terrified him. It sought this. It, 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 it was the catalyst for this journey where it said, bring these men in. I can't find answers in man. There's an answer that transcends man. And he brings Daniel about through his interactions to stand before him, give him the answer, and point everything back up to God. Now, I'm going to finish because I titled this message, The Utility of Babylon. The, the phrase utility means usefulness. Because there's a way in which Christians can often look, I mean, we, we look at the world now and we look at leaders and we, the struggles and we look at, at uh, countries, not kingdoms perhaps, but nations, and we say, why God? Why? And there's an answer through this book that says there's a, there is a utility to the Babylons of history. There's a utility, a usefulness to the Babylons today. God has them there, and He's doing things with them. And we draw that out of what we see in this story. Here's what we have. Number one, under the utility of a pagan Babylon, God uses Babylon for discipline. And we already saw that. I've already, I gave that to you last week where we read some of the other prophets who said, Israel is in deep sin and I'm going to raise up Babylon. Babylon is going to be a tool that I use to bring discipline to, to my people. The people were defeated. They came back. They're going to spend 70 years in Babylon. Do you remember what I said? They go back and they live in Jerusalem and never again do they, do they struggle as a nation with idolatry. There's something about the whole experience of Babylon that... that addresses that. Babylon is a tool of discipline for God, for, for His people. But Babylon also, Paul talks about the role of government, which is a whole nother sermon in the New Testament where he says, do you know one of the purposes of government is God gives the sword. He empowers government with the sword for discipline. Meaning, there's a role that governments play in trying to stave off the very worst effects that sin can have on a community. They play that role as a government. If you take that away, there can be chaos, like some of what we've seen on TV sometimes recently, where it's just mob rule. But the government in place, even the worst government, still there's a measure at what they do that staves off some of the worst things. They have that role. God uses Babylon for discipline. God uses Babylon to shape His people. Well, I already mentioned that because they're idolaters and they have to come in and then the experience that comes out of that is they no longer struggle as a nation with idolatry. He's shaped that in them through this experience of being in exile. And so there's a purpose where God puts us into exilic conditions, where we have to live in a specific way. You must engage the lost world. You know why? Because they need Christ. And there's a way in which sometimes I say, you want to know how to evangelize? Look at Daniel's a great book 
Esther's a great book. It shows us what God's people look like when they live in a culture where, where the faith of our Christianity is not the, the power. It's dealing with many other cultural forces that are antagonistic to it. See, in Israel, it was, you know what ruled? Judeo-Christian ethic, the, the Ten Commandments, the law. That was central to them as an identity, but not in Babylon. But in Israel, it was, come and look at what it looks like when God's law reigns. But now they have to go and live where Babylonian law reigns, but they need Christ. And God is shaping His people as missionaries to, to learn how to, it can't be come and be like us here. I got to go and engage them like Daniel's doing. The calling, one of the big callings in this study is to be the people in our church to strive for Daniel interactions in Guam, in the Babylon that God has placed us. God is shaping His people. God is also using Babylon for prophecy. It's interesting, Numbers 12, 6 says, When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. The pattern throughout the Old Testament is God speaks through prophets, his, his religious guys, dreams and visions. But Nebuchadnezzar's not that. He's a, not even a believer. He's, a, he's one of the worst guys, a murderer, a, 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 a very immoral sexually man, and yet you're giving the history of mankind in a vision to him? God sometimes surprises us this way, who he works through. And there's something to be said that, that the utility of Babylon is that God uses sometimes these secular people or nations or entities to fulfill his prophetic trajectory. When you get to the very end of the Bible, do you know that... Um, Israel is the focus. But there was a time where there was no Israel. They, they weren't even a country. You go back to World War II, they were just scattered all over the earth. They had no country. Yet God, raised, God allows Hitler to come into power, fiercely anti-Semitic, and you know the history, slaughtering Jews. Something that came out of World War II was the felt need that Israel needs to be recognized as a nation, they begin to flood back together and they end up becoming a nation again. So there's something about this wicked and evil regime that rises up that somehow God uses to bring His people back together to become a nation that is present at the end times. Interesting. And the, the point is just to be made. What is the utility of Babylon? Sometimes we can't see it. But God is doing something. He's always weaving together people and, and the events of the world to bring about His purposes. No nation or man or spiritual being can thwart the sovereignty of God. Lastly, it's the last point, is God uses Babylon for His glory. There's a way in which God gets the glory in all this because He is the orchestrator to bring Daniel up to where he is, to take the most powerful man in the world and then to say, I need, I need you. That brings, the spotlight goes there, upward to the God in heaven. Now I want to stop there. Next week we're going to 
look at the dream and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be prophetic. It's, we're going to lay out the history of the world. But I have to close with this because <clears throat> you need to be Daniel's. You need to engage the culture in the way that we're seeing Daniel engage. You need to have the interactions in the way that he's doing it and bring about the gospel. You see, we started with love the city, love the island, love the island culture, seek the welfare of the island. If it does well, you will do well. Is that how you live? Do you think that way? And I want to show you, we're going to close with this picture. That's my family, and we're standing there with Ian. Ian was in the first service. Ian's a local, and there's always been this kind of debate in churches here, especially Baby, because it's, it's, its history is tied very close to military, and sometimes it feels very Western. And when I came along, we began to talk about there has to be this long-term plan. We have to have ministries that reach these visitors who come and they're only here for two years and then God takes them away. We want to impact them so that they take something with them. But if we live off the cycle of people, we're not reaching the locals. How do we reach locals? This picture, look, you can tell it's old because I'm taller than my children. My boys are now all bigger than me. Look at Micah down there. He's bigger than me. Can't even see Abby. But we, we love Ian. We built this relationship with Ian. This picture is taken in the parking lot of GFA where I invested a lot of time and energy as a coach, as a player. And we built this relationship with Ian. My son Ethan there on the right works for Ian at a gym now. And the story, here's the story I want you to hear. I met with Ian this week. He, he was in church. You know what Ian said? He said, I, I, I'm going to get baptized. Baptism is this outward expression of a belief that's happened in here. He has come to this belief in here. And he was, the, the conversation actually was Ethan and him. Baptism came up. And Ian's point was, you know, um, I don't know if I should get baptized yet because, you know, there's still sin in my life. I kind of feel like I need to get these things right. And then I go and get baptized as like that's a, that's a, a marker of accomplishment. And Ian, or my son Ethan said to him, well, that's kind of like how sometimes you complain that people say they're not going to come to the gym until they lose weight because they're too out of shape to come and work out at the gym. He says, that's why they come to the gym so that they can work on making themselves better. The coming and the signing up isn't the marker that you've, you've made it. It's actually a recognition that you need it. And that's like, first of all, like a proud dad moment. <clears throat> but I tell you that story because do you know how many different interactions are part of the, the journey for Ian? First, there's maybe me. We're having coffee. We're having conversations. But Ian even told me, he said, you know, two of the most impactful people on this journey of faith were Andrew and Denise, who he goes and trains them in exercises. And we begin to, to identify and think about all the people of our community of faith that he's interacted with in different ways. And this is why the Bible says salvation is a community project. It can happen where one individual says the gospel, and they put their faith in Christ. But when you live in Babylon, this is really a, a strategy for reaching local Babylon. 
It used to be said, oh, I'm going to go and I'm going to be your friend because I want to tell you about Jesus. But then if they never accept Jesus, we start to leverage our time away from them. But that's not what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah said, you live in the city, you build relationships with people because you love the city and you love the people of that city. We are both citizens of this city, of this island, of this village. And whether or not you accept Jesus or you come to a stronger faith isn't the determining factor for me because I seek the welfare of this community. And it takes a community of people to go live in the island and to have many Daniel interactions over time to help bring people to a point where they would say, I'm going to get baptized as an expression of this faith that I've already put here in my heart. And that's, that's my, my passion. It's why I came to Guam, is to shape that in, in a community of people who can go out there and do that, to love the people of the island. Look at Daniel, how he interacts. He's interacting with people who want to kill him. He's interacting with people who want to control his diet and take over his life. We can do it. Daniel did it. God's people did it. And as we go through this, we're going to continue to be encouraged and see other ways in which we can be a Daniel to the Babylon that he's called us. Thank you, Father, for the story of Daniel. Thank you for so much that we learn. We learn that you have a purpose for everything that is happening. You weave together pagan kings and foreign nations that don't recognize you into a plan. You're using them to teach your people, to shape them, to discipline them. You're growing greater faith within your people. They're going to come back better and not be idolaters addicted to that. You make, you make us better through the Babylons of the world. And you've placed everyone here in this room. We live in Babylons. I don't know if there is an Israel in the sense of there was in the Old Testament where the Judeo-Christian faith reigns. We lived in mixed cultures with mixed faiths, with mixed values. I pray that you would grow within the people of Bayview. First, a desire to want to love, this, to love the island, to love the island culture, to love the people of it, even the parts of it that can be frustrating, to have discernment, to come forward, to offer solutions, to help make it a better culture, to make, make it a better island. And we would look for the Daniel interactions. You've put Nebuchadnezzar's in our life. Maybe they're a Nebuchadnezzar who's a leader. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're lower down the totem pole, an Ashpenaz or an Ariok. Maybe they're a companion that came out of Israel and they're losing their, their, their spiritual identity. There's such a diversity of people that we can interact with. I pray that we would want to and be driven towards living like a Daniel in Babylon. We lift this up in Jesus' name. Let's stand and we'll worship together as a church.